Well, if you're new, we're in a series called Abraham. And, uh, and, and really, if you want to open up, we're in Genesis 18 today. We've been going verse by verse, line by line, chapter by chapter. Well, now we're in Genesis chapter 18. And what I want to do, just even as we kind of begin today, is I want to give us a map of the Bible. Because let's just be honest, the Bible, it can be a scary book. It can be an intimidating book. It can be an overwhelming book. It's a big book, right? In general, people are, most people are afraid of books in general, right? It's like, here's a big book. There's no pictures. What is it about, right? Um, that's, and, and, and the Bible's got 66 different books in it. But let me just give you kind of a little map. Because um, why a map's important is because you need to know where you've been and where you are and where you're going. Well, that's, that's kind of the purpose of a map. And so uh, it, the map of the Bible where we find ourselves is first in creation. That's the first two chapters of Genesis. And sometimes people say things like, well, did God create the world because he was lonely? No, he did not. He already had God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He's been in great community, had the best family, lived in the best part of town. Everything was going really well for him. The way you can think about creation is God creates out of excess, abundance, out of an overflow. Here's a good way to think about it. It's like a young married couple. Imagine a young married couple. They actually love each other. They've got a great marriage. They've got good jobs. They've got a great house. And then they look at each other one day and they go, we need to share this with more people. And that's actually why you'd have a kid. Because we have something so special here. I'd like to share it with other people. And that's why you have children, right? You all know the worst thing you could do is to say our marriage is falling apart, let's add a third person. But people do that all the time. Maybe if we put somebody very needy that we'll have to take care of, that'll help our marriage, and it doesn't. But what we see is, is, is creation, overflow, that happens. Then there's curse, and that's, these are all start with C to make it easy for us. Uh, the curse, and that's where sin and brokenness come into the world, right? And that explains your life and your week and your marriage and your family and your year. And that's why things work against you. That's why you internally are torn that's why you're, you're dreading uh, Christmas, because there's, there's relational strife in your family. That's called the curse. That's the brokenness and the sinfulness. And so what does God do? God makes covenants. That's the whole Bible. From Genesis chapter 3 to Revelation chapter 20 is God making commitments and covenants and promises and pursuing us. And thank God for that. And that's what he does. And then in chapters 21 and 22 is new creation or consummation or the creation renewed. And where we find ourselves, if you understand the Bible, is we are at the very beginning of God making commitments, covenants, promises, and pursuing us. That's what he's doing. And he's been doing this again and again with Abraham, which is it's a picture and paradigm, and parable, really, of, of how he does it with us. And so let's look, up, uh, look with me at Genesis chapter 18, and we'll look at verse 1. Here's what it says. The Lord appeared. Why? Because God keeps pursuing. The Lord appeared to him. Who? That's Abraham. By the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of day. Now here's what you need to know. Uh, Oaks of Mamre, Mamre literally means fatness. Here's what you need to know. Abraham is living life very well right now. And that's, that's good to know because there'll be seasons of your life. Like, you know, Abraham had a season where he didn't have much. He was, he was in poverty, now he's in plenty. You know, he was earlier in famine, now he's flourishing. And what we're gonna see is, it's like, well, what do you do, by the way, when life's going well for you? Well, you thank God for it. You realize it's probably temporary. And you're willing to not use your excess and, your, and uh, all that you have as an excuse not to serve the Lord. We're actually going to see that he is as eager to serve the Lord as anything else. In fact, what we're going to see in this, par- or in this not parable, but this chapter today, um, is, is really a theme that we're going to kind of pull up. Um, and, and it's a theme of being a friend of God. And that may sound cheesy to us because what we've really lowered the idea of friendship in our society, right? But just so you know, Abraham is the only person in Scripture to be called a friend of God. He's called it twice in the Old Testament, once in the New Testament. But you think about friend, it's like, well, what does a friend mean? It's like you have 3,000 Facebook friends. You know, and you, you've got to, I mean, everybody's got to admit, those aren't really your friends. I mean, some of them are, but most of them aren't. And, and a good question to ask, even if you're not a Christian, if you're interested, like, what does it mean to be a friend? Because that's an important question. That's an important question for your marriage. 
That's an important question for, well, human flourishing in general. Well, what it means to be a friend, biblically, but I, I just think naturally this is what it means, is um, it means that a friend is somebody who you can share things with. That's literally what I mean. So I'll give you an example. Jesus, at the very end of his earthly ministry, he looks at his disciples and he says this phrase. He says, I no longer call you servants, but friends. So you, okay, Jesus calls us friends. Why? He goes, because I've shared all things with you. It's like, well, that's actually what it means, right? In fact, how do you know? What's the litmus test? Like, how do you know if someone's your friend? Well, I don't know exactly, but here's a, here's a helpful litmus test. Do you have their cell phone number? Not their work number with the extension attached to it, right? <laughs> not, not their work email address, right? Not their secretary's email address, right? Because, well, think about that for a second. What do you communicate when you give someone your cell phone number? That's why you don't give many people your cell phone number, right? What you're saying is, hey, you could have access to me at any time. This comes directly to me, right? And, and with messaging and stuff, it's like it's instantaneous. And, and you're probably going to expect, if you have my cell phone, you're probably going to expect me to respond, right? So that, that's kind of the whole idea. That, and, and by the way, what you do as you deepen a friendship, this is actually technically what you do, whether you realize it or not, is when you're building a friendship, what you do little by little is just share more things with people and then say, it's like a test. Like, I'm going to share this with you. See how, and I'm going to watch you very carefully and see what you do with this. So I'm just going to share a little bit about my life and maybe, maybe I'll step out and maybe I'll share something I struggle with. Maybe I won't. And I'll basically see how you respond, which leads to the second thing about friends. Friends don't only share, and this is cheesy, but it's a good way to remember it. They care. They share and care. That's literally it. It's like, right? Because when you share, the worst thing you can do is share good news with somebody who's like, well, I, I actually don't want good things for you. So I'm bitter and resentful and revengeful toward you when you tell me that. And I, I can't tell you about the inheritance I got because you'll just be bitter because you don't have as much money. You can't actually rejoice with me. And I can't really tell you the terrible things that happen in my life because there's a dark part of you that's kind of rejoicing in it because you've kind of been jealous of me. And so, you know, 50% of you rejoices, but another 50 of you says, well, I'm really glad that happened because, well, he, I think he probably deserved that. Life's been going a little too good for him. And so a friend is somebody who you can share with and who cares. And that's actually what we're going to see in this parable. Or I keep saying parable, passage. Um, because what you're going to see is, is God's going to come to Abraham's house. We're going to see this in a moment. And Abraham's going to act like a friend. What does a friend do? Come on in. Welcome. And then later, they're going to walk together, and God's going to go, should I share this with Abraham? And he decides to share it with him. And so what I want us to do is I want us to go and see this. Look at me again at chapter 18, and we're going to look here at verse 2. Here's what it says. Abraham lifted up his eyes. He literally is in his tent about, it's a siesta, right? They would take these at noon. He's resting. He's relaxing. Uh, he lifted up his eyes, and he looked, and behold, three men. Now, you'll see this as this unpacks. These three men are, uh, it's the Lord. Now, people ask, is it the pre-incarnate Christ or not? We don't know. But the main figure is uh, God. The two other men are angels. That's what we know. That's what will, be, what will be made clear in the story. But I want you to see this. And behold, three men were standing in front of him. And when he saw them, he ran. Okay, he's 100. You don't see an old man running very often, but here he is. Okay? He ran from the tent door to meet him, and he bowed himself down to the earth. Now, a couple things we see here. This is interesting. First of all, uh, God visits us often when we're least expecting it. Now, here's what I mean, here's what I mean by this. Uh, first of all, Abraham's about to take a nap. It's the middle of the day. And, and the reason they're telling us all this, and they say it was in the heat of the day and all that, here's what that means. Nobody worked and nobody traveled during this time. You know, your version of it might be like late at night. It's like, well, you're not, don't worry about anyone coming over then. Right? It's kind, of, it's kind of the one time of the day where you think you might get some peace and you certainly think you will not have anyone visit you. But then, and this is very interesting, he visits, I think God visits us often where we least expect him. 
to visit us, right? He doesn't visit him at the altar. He, I mean, he has in the past. He doesn't visit him at the synagogue, in the temple, in the church, in the community group. He visits him at home. Now, why is that? Well, it's because God wants to see real you, not religious you, right? Like religious you is here right now. You know, and you've got your Bible out, and you're taking notes, and you're raising your hands in worship, and you're making listening noises, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> you know, and you drop your kids off, and you fought in the car, but you got here, and everybody's nice to each other, and it's like, right, and you, you know the right things to say, and you know, most times when people ask, how are you, they're just really saying, I recognize you as a human, and you say, I'm good, and that means I recognize you as a human, right? That's, that's kind of what we do. And so real you is different. Real you is at home. And I don't know, by the way, if you've ever had an unexpected, some of you live places no one ever could get to, but, 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 um, but you know, if you've ever had an unexpected guest, like we had this a couple churches ago where I was working at, we had this great guy, really nice guy, normal guy, all things considered. Um, <laughs> But, but I'm serious, he would randomly show up at our house. And he was like fairly normal other than that. Like that but that was, he would just do that and they'd be like, well, what are you, uh, are you hungry? You know what I mean? Like, do, do you have important news to tell us? Did something terrible happen? And he would just show up. And he'd stay for 30 minutes or and then he'd leave. Well, if you've ever had someone sh- show up at your house, you are immediately aware of what your house is like in ways that you weren't, right? A new person enters and you're like, uh-oh. And what happens is oftentimes then the real you is, right? The real you kind of does come out. Someone comes over, you're like, all right, put, put the pizza boxes away. I want them to think we cook, you know, <laughs> right? <laughs> or, you know, oh, it's four o'clock. I'm still in my jammies. Like, you know, I don't want them to know this. Um, or, you know, oh, I, I don't want them to know I watched that show or that, it's, that I'm in season seven of it. That would not, turn, turn it off, <laughs> right? <laughs> oh, no, they're here. I don't want them to know that I day drink. Got a little quiet in here, um, <laughs> right? But, but, but uh, what, they show up, oh no, well, I'm actually been fighting with my wife and now I, we've got to act like everything's okay and you, you know how it's like, it's like all these things. And so this is interesting because your home is, especially in America and autonomous, privatized, you know, my house is my castle, you know, my, my home is, is my palace kind of thing, is that when somebody intrudes into it, comes into it, we're kind of exposed. And here's what we see Abraham does. He, he, we're going to see this. He runs to them. He welcomes them into his home. He practices hospitality. And, I, and I've talked about this before, but this is such a huge concept. We're going to talk about it again for a little bit. Uh, it comes up in 1 Peter, which we talked about hospitality briefly. Um, it's, it's a character quality. So it's commanded to all Christians and a character quality of an elder. In other words, it says if an elder does not do this, he, can, um, he should not be an elder. And what is hospitality? Well, think, it comes from the word hospital. We get hospital, where we get the word, uh, where we get hospitals from as well. The, the whole idea is, um, it's to, it literally technically means to love the stranger. That's what hospitality means. And so what happens is, it's different than fellowship. Like, fellowship's a really good thing, and, and a lot of Christians don't even practice that, and we need to grow on that. But fellowship is like, hey, you're my Christian friend, and we like each other, and we know each other, and come over Friday. And we'll have dinner, and we'll have, that's fellowship. And fellowship's a great thing, and we need more of it. Um, Hospitality is I'm inviting somebody over who either is a stranger to me or a stranger to the Lord. That's it. That's what it means. And I'm, I'm going to welcome them into my home. And this is incredibly important because, you know, you saw it in the Joe May video, if you, if you watch that carefully. What happens in that Joe May video is he basically says, hey, the number one thing that's helped us in our ministry is, uh, is hospitality. And let me tell you, if, whenever I talk to pastors from Europe, from Australia, from Canada, they all say the same thing, that hospitality is the future of the church. Right? Because many people, they're not going to come to, they're not going to come to this room. They're not going to come to a community group. They're not going to come to an event. But they will, if you build a relationship with them, come into your home. And this is becoming more and more important for a couple reasons. I mean, if you think about our society, uh, we are living in a society that is, well, 
I don't know if it's any more broken than any other time, but it's, it's certainly a broken society. And what I mean by that is most people have never seen a great marriage. You know, most people have never seen a godly home. Most people have never seen a home that has discipline and love. And how are they going to see it? I mean, we can talk about it up here, and we can shoot a video for a couple minutes and talk about it, and, everyone, and you can read a book on it, and that's certainly helpful too. You know, but, but I can remember one, one time when we went over to this house, and a couple, they had four kids, and, and I saw the husband and the wife lovingly relate to each other, and I saw the kids obey, and it was like a strange world, you know? <laughs> and then afterwards, we left. My wife and I left. This is before we had kids. I said, well, can we pray over you guys? I thought, well, that's kind of a cool way to end the night together. To pray. I never saw that. And Well, you see it when you're in the home, right? And this is really important culturally because we live in a very transient time. And you know this, even in Winston-Salem. You know, people are here for three or four years, medical school, law school, you know, just regular college. They got a job. They get transferred. And they're here for just a little bit of time. And it's actually easy, especially if you're single or you're married without kids. You, buy, you, know, you rent an apartment downtown. Your whole life is downtown. And you may never be in someone's home. Right? I was reading this thing about how the, the, the um, kind of the growth of all of those quick service food places that we all love, like the Chipotle's, and, you know, they're, they're growing everywhere. Like, it's kind of like three steps above fast food, but you don't have a waiter or waitress. Well, the reason those things exist, there's a lot of reasons, primarily to make money, but um, the, the, the reason those exist is because people don't eat together anymore. Like, you know, the, you don't go those, you don't have a significant conversation, you want to go somewhere you can sit down. You want to go somewhere where you can, with the lighting's you want to go somewhere where you can have a conversation. You go into Chipotle, everybody's got their AirPods in looking at their phones, eating by themselves. We, we live in a, in a society where there's less and less of that. And, and this is going to be really, really important if we're going to reach people. Now, think about it this way. So, so sometimes, how do we do this as a church? When, when, sometimes people say, well, why do you have a first impressions team here? Why do you have a welcome tent? Why do you have ushers? Why do you have greeters? It's, a theolo- it's actually theological in nature. Some people go, that's, that's shallow. That's not shallow. That's theological. It's saying we want to be organizational hospitality. We want to communicate to every person and every guest that comes here that we're ready for you, we're waiting for you, we were expecting you, we have a place for you. That's what you, that's what you communicate. And by the way, our community groups, which starting in January, you know, if you've been to a weekend or you got to get in one of our community groups, um, but starting in January, we're going to have something like 55 community groups. And that's really quite amazing. And one of the most amazing things about that that I, I don't celebrate enough, we don't talk about enough, is that guess what that means? That means 55 families practice hospitality every week. And that's actually, by the way, that's a good way to think about community groups. Community groups is going from hospitality to fellowship. When you, when you start a community group, everyone's a stranger. Like, oh, no, who are they? Where are they coming? You know, they have kids. I heard they have three kids. They're bringing all of them tonight, right? It's like, you know, that, that's hospitality. They're a stranger to me. I don't know them. The hope is six months in, it moves from hospitality to fellowship. Oh, I love them. We're hanging out. We're going, yeah, Chris, we hang out even when we don't have group. Well, then you've gone from hospitality to fellowship. And so what we see is he invites the Lord. He invites it says in this passage, a stranger, we know it's the Lord, into his home. Look at verse, look, look what happens. Let's go back to verse one. The Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. So what we see is that the Lord appeared to him during his free time. In other words, sometimes it means that you're going to have to be flexible and inconvenienced if you're going to serve the Lord and serve other people. And sometimes people go, well, you know, especially in a church like ours, lots of young families, people don't say this out loud, but a lot of times people say, well, I just can't serve the Lord in the season when I have kids in the home. It's like, well, what that means is two and a half decades. That's actually technically what that means. It's like, well, I have two or three kids, and, and I kind of got to be just mom or dad. You know, that's, all, that's all I can handle while the kids are at the home. It's like, well, that means for 25 years, you're pressing pause on all ministry outside of your home. And actually, what you want to do, by the way, a healthy version is, actually, I want my home to be the base and the center of ministry, and I want to do ministry from my home and with my kids and with my spouse 
But I don't want to say that that's the only ministry that I do. So here he's inconvenienced. And then look at verse, we read this already, but verse two, halfway through, says he ran from the tent, he bowed himself down, and he said, oh Lord, if, you, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Here's what we see. We see an eagerness to serve the Lord. Like he, you're going to see again, he's going to say in a few minutes, quickly, and, and, and he, he runs to this place and he gets somebody else. There's an eagerness to serve the Lord. And, and here's the whole idea. Uh, we serve the Lord by serving people. That's actually how it works. That's a good principle for life. Like we serve the Lord by serving people. And the motivation to long-term serve people, because I know, you know church is no place to be honest, okay? But if we were being honest, uh, it's very difficult. There are some people that are very difficult to love and serve. For various reasons, sometimes it's their personality. It's very difficult to, to, to serve them. That's why you have to have the motivation. Ultimately, I'm not serving people. Ultimately, I'm serving the Lord. And this is why in you know, Matthew 25, it says, when you did it to the least of these, it's like, well, why is that? Well, because sometimes serving the least of these is the hardest. It's the most time-consuming. It's the most energy-demanding. Well, whenever you did it to them, you did it to me. And then another place, Jesus says, well, if you give someone a cup of water, I'll reward you. In other words, I, I'm in, intermingled in all of this, and I'm going to reward you for it. So he serves with flexibility. He, he serves eagerly. Uh, he serves generously. Look at this, verse 4. Let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree. So he's letting them kind of rest uh, as he prepares the food. While I bring a morsel of bread that may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to, uh, come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly, so we see the eagerness, into the tent uh, to Sarah and said, quick, and then look what it says there. He got fine flour. He got fine flour. He says, knead it, make cakes. Abraham ran to the herd, and he took a calf, tender and good, and he gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared, and he set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. So, you know, he does a couple things there. First of all, he gets, he gets others to serve the Lord with him, right? That's leadership. Serve the Lord in community. He starts serving the Lord, so he's like, all right, his wife starts to serve the Lord, uh, the, the men in his house start to serve the Lord, right? You can only call other people to serve the Lord if you're serving the Lord. So, so he's calling them, but then he's incredibly generous. It says he gets the fine flour, he gets the good calf. It's like, you know, we talk about this often, but in Scripture, it's to give your first, it's to give your best, and sometimes it's to give your only. But what's the temptation of the church? To give your last, your last, your last, your least, and your leftovers, right? It's like, well, here's a really old car, and it doesn't really work anymore, and it costs more to fix it than I could sell it for. Would the church like it? And could I get a tax deduction on that? Oh, so generous of you, you know? Uh, hey, here's an old couch, and a couple of its cushions are falling off, and it only has two of the four legs. Could the student ministry use it? And the answer to that is yes, of course we could use it, right? <laughs> That's why that couch is in every student ministry, you know? But, but the whole idea there is, is, is it, are we willing to give, give our best? Are we willing to give our first? Are we willing to give it only? Are you willing to give anything? That's a whole other question, right? It's like, think about it. If you give zero to the kingdom of God, if there were a million of you, it wouldn't make a difference. Okay, then that's actually a good question to ask for all of your life. If there were more of me, would it make a difference? And the person who gives zero, it goes, if there was a million of you, it'd make no difference in the kingdom, no dent in the kingdom. And so here we go. Abraham is generous. He's, he's serving the Lord. He's doing it in community. And then God comes inside. God steps into the house, and look what happens in verse 9. And they said to, they said to him, they said to Abraham, where is Sarah, your wife? So God shows up, and he starts asking about your marriage which is why most people don't want him in their house, right? No thanks, Lord. Uh, Where's Sarah, your wife? He said she's in the tent. Interesting, they're not spending their free time together. This is a little foreshadowing. We're gonna see they've got some problems. 
Right, you know, the couple who doesn't want to spend any of their free time together, not, not a great sign. Verse 10, then the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. She's eavesdropping. This is the first case of eavesdropping in the Bible, okay? She's checking his text messages. She's reading his emails. She's listening to his phone conversations, okay? Uh, I know no women ever do that, but okay, verse 11. Uh, now Abraham and Sarah were old, and they were advanced in years. One was 90, one was 100. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah, and Sarah laughed to herself. Now, this is interesting. Uh, laughing, I showed you this, is a, is a big deal in this section of Scripture. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we saw Abraham laughed, and it was the laugh of wonder. It was the laugh of amazement. It was the laugh of, I can't believe this is going to happen. It was, the, it was really a laugh of belief in how good God was. Now, with Sarah, it's a laugh of, it's a cynical laugh of unbelief. God is just one more man she thinks she's smarter than. And so she laughs. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? So she laughs at God, and we all do this. She laughs at God and says, yeah, 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 I know you say this, ha, 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 but you don't understand my life and my circumstances and my situations. Ha, ha, ha. You're so, that's so archaic. That's so old-fashioned. That's, actually, that's not actually how marriage works. Ha, 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 ha. No, no, you don't understand what it's like to date in the 21st century. You actually can't stay pure while you date. You can't do it. You actually can't, you know, you can't repent of that sin. You can't live without that sin in the 21st century. No, everybody abuses alcohol. That's just how it is. And she begins to laugh at God, but she does it. Now, this is interesting. This is why she thinks she's okay, because she does it to herself, by herself. Does it still count if you sin by yourself, <laughs> to yourself? Yes, it does. You know, is it still sinful if you say it in your head and your heart? It is. And so this is what they do. She says it in her heart, she says it in her head, and she laughs at the Lord. And then look at his response, verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? And then here's the great question. Is anything too hard, or literally, is anything impossible? Is anything impossible for the Lord? And then he gives the most specific promise we've gotten so far. At this appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. What are you saying is impossible or too hard for God to do? Right? And I just want to encourage you. It is possible. It is possible for you not to abuse medication. It is possible. It is possible for you to repent of that sinful habit, that private sexual habit. It's, it's actually possible. It is possible to tell the truth even when you're afraid. It is possible to be reconciled to your dad or your mom, or your grandfather, or the people you don't want to see at Christmas. That's actually possible. It's possible for your neighbor to come to faith in Christ. It's possible for your rebellious son to come back. I mean, it, all of these things are possible. And so we've got to stop laughing at God. We need to honestly take God more seriously, laugh at ourselves more, right? We need to learn how to laugh at ourselves. Now, this is interesting. When you laugh, we all respect somebody who can laugh at themselves, Right? And that's, by the way, admiration is the reflex of your conscience. That's a good thing to know. So when you admire somebody, that's your conscience going, you like that. So you got to make sure your conscience is right. But your admiration is the reflex of your conscience. And we admire someone, we find them endearing if they can laugh at themselves. Well, why is that? Let me tell you why. Because when you laugh at yourself, here's what happens. Look, say I came up here and, uh, and I tripped, which, you know, thank God I have not done, okay? But I come up on stage and I trip. Um, and 
but I joke about it with you guys. Like, I, I, how silly was that? I just tripped. You know, well, what am I doing? The best part of me is laughing at the worst part of me. The wise part of me is laughing at the foolish part of me. And here's why we don't like people who don't laugh at themselves. They're only fool. Technically, that's true. They're only a fool. Because they can't see the fool. So they're all fool. When a person laughs at themselves, the best part of themselves laughs at the worst part of themselves. And it's very, very endearing. And so what we need to do is we need to be the type of people who can continue to laugh at ourselves and take God very, very seriously. So God comes in, he starts asking questions. Verse 15, this is what we all do. Basically, Sarah laughs at God, has unbelief, but, it, but it's by herself, in her head. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And God said, he said, no, but you did laugh. So God kindly, consistently confronts and challenges her. See, here's what happens. Uh, when we sin, if we do not confess it, we have a bunch of other options, most of which we try to use, okay? So here, here's, a, here's a couple options when you sin, just like Sarah does, okay? First of all, you lie about it. It's like, that's not, you know, you start doing that, they say people start lying at three years old, roughly. Because it's a, you gotta be fairly sophisticated to lie. You have to create a second reality that could have happened, and then you have to say that happened, okay? So you do that around three years old. And, and most people, that's kind of, it's like some of you decided this sin is too difficult to repent of, so I will lie about it. And I've seen that, I'll tell you, it's, I wouldn't recommend that. Because what ends up happening is you lie about it until you get caught. And you'd rather confess than get caught. Because then the, the effects of doing that for 10 years or 15 years or 20 years and lying about it, they, they, they don't go away. They all hit you at one time and sometimes it's too much to recover. And by the grace of God, you can, but it's overwhelming. I've seen this. Well, another thing you can do is you can minimize it. And how, here's how you minimize your sin. You look at people who... Um, are better than you in some areas, but not the area you're comparing them to. So you're like, well, let me just compare this area of my life to that area, to that person, and then I'll feel better about myself. That's, that always works. Another one is a euphemism. So these are kind of, you gotta be pretty sophisticated to use euphemisms. So, you know, kids are really honest when they finally, you know, but, but as, you get, as you become an adult, you get better at euphemisms, right? So it's not adultery, it's an affair, right? Um, it, it's not porn, it's adult entertainment. It's not fornication, it's friends with benefits. It's not killing a baby, it's a woman's choice and reproductive rights. It's not getting drunk, it's having fun. I mean, whatever it is, we use these euphemisms. And, and then, some of you, that you've just decided to do this, it's like, well, here's what I'll do. Um, I'll, I'll, defend, I'll deny and defend when people come to talk to me about it. And that works really well, because then we never want to talk to you about it again. It's so, like, and you actually, here's what you do. You've got the two or three things you're going to talk to us about if we ever confront you. And that's like, okay, you actually have them. You know, so when we talk to you, you just bring them up. You deny what you do, and then you go, well, here's what you do. And you create an environment where no one wants to talk to you about the sins in your life. And so this is what Sarah does. But I want you to see one other very interesting thing. Go back to verse 12. So Sarah laughed to herself. And that's Sarah's sin. But I want you to see something very interesting. Saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, so that's talking to their age, she says this, shall I have pleasure? Now here's what's really interesting about that word. This is why we believe in the inerrancy of scripture and that every word matters. That word pleasure, it's talking nothing about children. That's the language of marital, sexual, intimate pleasure. Here's, what's, here's what we're understanding. That Abraham and Sarah have had no relationship. Isn't that an interesting thought? 
It's like, all right, you've got this amazing promise. You're, I'm going to give you a son. You have the promises of God, but you have to do your part. It's like, it seems like Abraham and Sarah have no intimate relationship. Maybe that's why there were two different parts of the tent when they come visit. Maybe that's why the first question is, where's your wife? And so they, they, this, is, this is the circumstances. And, and so what Sarah needs is more than just a child. She needs a relationship with her husband. Now, who knows why they weren't getting along, right? Well, there's plenty of reasons. There's plenty of reasons for them to be bitter at each other. Just like in your marriage, there's plenty of reasons. It's like, well, you know, he's a liar and he put me in, he endangered me. Well, yeah, that's true. You know, well, you know, she had this idea that, you know, that I was going to go with Hagar and that didn't work out and then she got mad. And, you know, of course. And so actually part of what needs to happen is their relationship needs to be restored so the promises of God can be fulfilled. How many of you, that's the story of your life? It's like, well, if your marriage were better, if you would deal, and that's actually humility, right, by the way, is deal with myself first. Like, you know, I, I, you're not going to change the world. You know, but you could change yourself and you could humbly put yourself and your marriage together and no one would ever notice, but that would be the hard work and that would make a difference and that would give you integrity and that would give you moral authority and that would affect your kids, but no one's gonna, you know, know about that. And so, so he, he tells them, he comes to do this, and then, and then Abraham leaves with them. Verse 16. Then the men set, set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. And the Lord said, and by the way, this is the language of friendship, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Now, of course, God knows what he's going to do already. He does all this for us, right? And by the way, you, you do this with people. If you ever say to somebody, I probably shouldn't tell you this, but... You know, it's like, well, you've already decided to tell me. And actually what you're doing there is actually a very smart thing. You're signaling to me that you care about me and that you trust me and that you're going to tell me something very special. The whole reason you do that is to let me know how important it is. So here's what he says. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all of the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised. And then look at verse 20. So the Lord decides all this. And then the Lord said, because of the outcry, and that's going to be a key word. You'll see that's going to show up one more time. But because of the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave... I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the, here it is again, the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. And by the way, again, God's kind of giving us language there, right? I'm going to go down and see. The whole idea is don't just believe what everyone tells you. You need to see it for yourself. That's, that's the idea there. But, but the phrase is outcry, and that's an interesting phrase because it doesn't just mean that the sins they're doing are screaming out against them, which that certainly would mean that too, but in this text... Outcry, it's the same word, it's the same Hebrew word that's used when it says Abel's blood cries out against Cain in, uh, in Genesis 4. It's the same word that's going to be used in Exodus where it says um, the people were enslaved in Egypt and they cried out and God heard their cries. Here's the big idea that when it says that God heard the outcry, it's he hears how the sin is affecting other people. And he's hearing the cries of those who are oppressed by the sinner, the sinful, rebellious people in that city. And what were the sins of that city? Now, when everybody thinks of Sodom and Gomorrah, they think of sexual, shameless perversion. And it certainly was that. But it's, it's nice to think, oh, that's what it is, and, and I don't struggle with that, so thank goodness I'm okay. 
But actually what you see is, if you, if you look, and I think I've got this on the screen, in Ezekiel 16, God looks back on Sodom and Gomorrah and he mentions other sins. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had, and then this sounds like America, pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, and did not aid the poor and the needy, and they were haughty, and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. And, and here's the idea with all of this, is that your sin, this is what we're saying when the sin, it says the sin cries out, is that your sin never affects just you, right? I mean, they're, they're kind of, you know, there's some people who go, well, you know, it's, it's not hurting anybody. That's kind of a classic defense of some sin in someone's life, Right? It's not hurting anyone. Well, it's like, well, we now know that that's not true. We know that from scripture. We actually know that from science. You know, and I know often I talk about pornography and people say, well, why do you talk about pornography so much? Well, it's interesting. I just had a lady come up to me a couple weeks ago and she said, I always wonder why you talk about pornography so much. This is an older lady in her church. And she said, and she said to me, um, but I, I was just somewhere and I read that 70% of all searches online are for pornography. It's like, well, that would, how could you not talk about it then? But, but let's, take, let's take pornography for a second. It's like, well, what does pornography do? Like, well, we actually technically know this, that it rewires the human brain, right? And so that you actually, you actually it actually, well, I don't know a lot about the brain, but you know, it makes new pathways and all that kind of stuff. And basically it, makes, it changes how you see women, it changes how you see men, it changes how you interact with people. It's like, when you sin, it affects you, and unfortunately, you have to interact with everybody, right? And so what happens when you love money? It's like, well, unfortunately, it affects everything you do. And the way you make decisions and the relate, way you relate to your coworkers and the way that you hire and fire the people in your work and your love of money is affecting so many different people. And it'd be great if it only affected you, right? And you know this because it's like, and I've mentioned it a couple times, but it's like you, the history of some of your families is how other people's sin is even having a multi-generational effect, which is, by the way is a big theme in scripture. It's like, you know, your grandfather or your great-grandfather or your uncle or your brother or your ex-whatever you know, they did something and, you know, it's still affecting you and it's affecting your kids and you felt like you were, you know, you did the right thing and, and, and all that happens. And so he's talking about this outcry and here's what he does. Here's what Abraham does. Verse 22. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham stood still before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, and, and many of you know this story, but you got to ask the question, what would you do? It's like, if there was some terrible, rebellious city, would you really pray that God would save it? It would be nice to think that you would. Maybe you would. Maybe you wouldn't. Maybe you're just as frustrated, right? Have there ever been certain cities in America where you're like, I'm just frustrated with that city? Like, I, I, I don't like the news that I hear out of that. I don't, like, I don't like the agenda that I feel like, whatever it is. It's like, well, here is like the worst example of that. And here's what Abraham prays. Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in there? So he's going to do something very, very interesting here, which is he's going to ask, he's, a couple things are happening for the first time ever. First of all, this is the longest prayer so far we have in the Bible that we're going to see here. Uh, secondly, um, it's the first prayer we have where somebody is, and this will happen again. Moses does this. Jesus, of course, does this. David does this. But it's the first prayer we have where somebody is interceding on behalf of another person. Uh, it's very unique because it's, I think it's the only place in Scripture where we have somebody interceding for the Canaanites, this, un, this godless people. And, and what, what, um, what Abraham is doing is he's, he's acting like a priest. 
He's acting like a mediator. This is actually really powerful if you think about it. He's standing between God. Tell me if this sounds familiar. He's standing between God and sinful man and saying, is there a way for them to be saved? And, and he's standing there and he's saying, okay, and, and if you read it at one level, you go, you know, verses 27 to 32 is, is he, it almost feels like he's haggling with God at the marketplace almost. Like, you know, it sounds like an auction. Hey, can I get 50? Can I get 40? 30? 20? If you know the story, right? 10, you know, it's like he gets him down to, this is literally what happens. Like he, he kind of goes back and forth with God. It's a humble, bold prayer, right? He goes, God, I know I shouldn't, you know, speak and I know I'm finite, and, but would you? And he goes back and forth with God and he gets to 10. And really he's asking this question and this is, this is and if you're familiar with Christianity, if you're familiar with the gospel, which is the good news of Jesus and the main message of Christianity, you're gonna notice this. He, here's what he's asking. Here's what he's, if you get to the heart of it, here's what Abraham's asking. Would it be possible for the righteousness of a few people to cover the unrighteousness of many people? Or another way to say it is, God, would you spare a bunch of sinners because there are a few people who are righteous? That, that, that's actually at the heart of Christianity. He's actually going, see, up until this point, there's been, it's been taught through Genesis 1 through 18, have been taught the negative effects of sin on people. He's asking this question, can it work in reverse? Could there be good people could there be a good, he doesn't get this far, but could there be a good person? But is there a group of people that if they were righteous, they could spare a whole city? Well, what's interesting is when you read the story, you've got to, if you're, if you're reading it, you've got to go, why didn't he talk about one person? Like it's, it's, it's the climax, right? It's like, well, 50, 40, 30, 20, 10, why not one? Most commentators think because he absolutely knew there wasn't one person there. He even knew Lot was, Lot was, we find out in 2 Peter, Lot was a Christian, but he was like many of you. He, no one knew he was a Christian. He wasn't, he wasn't very faithful. He was relatively righteous, but not really righteous. And so Jesus Christ comes along, and he, the answer, if, if Abraham were to say, would you spare a sinful people if you could find one righteous person? We actually know the New Testament is God's answer to that question. The answer to that question is yes, I would. And that's exactly why Jesus Christ needed to come. Jesus Christ needed to live the life that you cannot live, but you must live. And Jesus Christ needed to die the death that you deserve to die. He, he experienced what Sodom and Gomorrah did for us. That's the whole idea. He experienced chapter 19 of Sodom and Gomorrah for us so that we could be freed, so that we could be made new. And, and here's the thing, when you realize that, God, that Jesus Christ has done that for you, it gives you compassion on all the people in all the cities of the earth. And it makes you realize, I mean, that's why people go, well, why did Abraham pray that way? It's because he saw himself fundamentally as a sinner saved by grace. And I'll tell you, in eight days, we're gonna have a prayer night here, and I hope it's packed. Because what we're gonna do is we're gonna, we're gonna come together next Monday night, and we are going to pray for our church, and we're going to pray for our city. And I, and I love what Charles Spurgeon said, the, the great pastor of the 1800s. Here's what he said about prayer. He said this, if lost sinners will not hear you speak, they cannot prevent you from praying. Do they jest at your exhortations? They cannot disturb you at your prayers. Are they far away so that you cannot reach them? Your prayers can reach them. Have they declared that they will never listen to you again, nor see your face? Never mind. God has a voice which they must hear. Speak to him, and he will make them feel. Though they now treat you despitefully, rendering evil for your good, 
Follow them with your prayers. Never let them perish for lack of your supplications. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you right now in Jesus' name. And we thank you that he is the great mediator, the great priest who said, would you spare them if I go to the cross? And that was a conversation. And you said that you would, and we are grateful, Lord. In in, in response, we want to pray right now. We want to just pray these things, Lord. First, some of you may just need to say, Lord, I need to be hospitable too. God had been so hospitable to us, welcoming us as strangers. Right now, maybe you just need to pray, Lord, I need to be hospitable too. And maybe it's going to be a person. Maybe it's going to be a couple. Maybe it's going to be a neighbor. Maybe it's going to be a coworker. Secondly, maybe you want to pray something like this. Lord, I need to stop denying this sin in my life. I've been rationalizing. I've been lying about it. I've been minimizing it. I've been using euphemisms. I defend myself every time somebody brings it up. And I just need to repent. I need to confess. I need to grow. I need to change. And finally, Lord, I need to start praying for. It's probably the same person that you need to invite over. Lord, I pray that we would be a church that prays. That prays for each other because we love each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. And prays for our city, Lord. That you might be gracious and merciful because of what Christ has done. We ask it in your name. Amen.